Well, I hope it is well with your soul. Is it well with your soul? I would like for you to lift up your Bible. If you brought one, raise it up. If it's in front of the pew and you, take one out and raise it up. Let me see a Bible or two. That's great. Now, if you would be so kind as to repeat these words after me. This is my Bible. It is the Word of God. I am who it says I am. I have what it says I have. I will live as it calls me to live. Thank you very much. What is entropy? Last week we talked about entropy. And uh, I gave you some definitions. I'll give you another definition today. Um, several were here yesterday morning, led by Dave Ekstrand, and Dan was here, and Steve Armay, and uh, Lucian, and uh, Cindy, and others, John, and, and several others. And one of the things they did in terms of cleaning here in the sanctuary was they lowered these lights. And uh, entropy is what happens to these lights over time. Bulbs burn out. Dust collects, rust comes, they quit. That's entropy. And there is a law built into our universe, and it's called entropy. It is that systems tend toward chaos, and that's entropy. Systems tend towards disorganization. Things fall apart, and we talked a bit about that. And John Ortberg, in um, the quote you have in front of you, and I hope you'll find the outline and follow along, John says, spiritual entropy means that our spiritual lives tend to move toward disorder if we don't put energy into keeping them vibrant and alive. And we talked about that last week. We didn't finish what we were talking about, so we're going to finish that today. And my question to you throughout the day is, are you willing to identify the entropy in your life and do something about it? That's really all we're talking about for two Sundays. Now, you've been challenged to read through the book of Judges. You read Joshua and Judges, and you need a gold star if you've actually done this, because these are not the most popular books in the Bible. But I hope that in the Sundays we've spent in them, I've given you some clues as how to read these scriptures successfully so that God's Word can be applied to your life. Now, I've had a great week, but it was an upsetting week because I read through the end of Judges, and it just floored me. I'd kind of forgotten how it ended, and you don't even need to bother reading it, but... uh, We're going to talk a little bit about the book of Judges today and kind of finish this up. But it's really a story of humanity, and it's a story of of entropy. It's a story of starting out fairly bad and getting worse, actually. And throughout the book of Judges, as you read about it, just think about a downward cycle or downward spiral. Things go from bad to worse, and it ends with just absolute anarchy and chaos. Now, in the midst of that, and I hope to say this again, but in the midst of that is the amazing grace of God. Why doesn't God just wipe these people off the face of the earth and start over? Forget about the Jews. Get somebody else. But God doesn't. And that's a word of grace. And so this morning I want to pick up where we left off, but not actually. I want to actually go through last week's sermon, okay? Oh, can't you groan or something? Um, Yeah, let's do that real quickly. Uh, And again, the question is, are you willing to confront entropy? 
And last week I talked about the, the vicious cycle of entropy in our lives, which tends towards disorder and destruction spiritually. Or are you in the victorious cycle, which can build your life actually toward the abundant life that Jesus Christ talked about? Which is it? And so you decide for yourself, I decide for mine. But we talked last week about this victorious cycle and passing on the faith. And uh, I so desperately want to spend some more time on this point. But uh, we said that if you're in the vicious cycle, you're not passing on your faith to your children. If you're in the victorious cycle, you are as a parent, as a grandparent. Um, I got a letter again from my dad. I was going to read some of it to you, but there's just not time. But it was um, an encouragement to me, and he sent it out to his sons, his grandsons. It's an encouragement to us not to let entropy slip into our lives. And so that's the first thing we talked about. Now, the second thing was, was what? We talked about power, and we used Gideon as the example. He was a judge in the, in the story. And remember, he was always whining and complaining about how weak he was. He really didn't want to do what God asked him to do. And we talked about analyzing ourselves. Am I in the vicious cycle of trying to live under my power, or am I living under God's power? And then after that, we talked about what was next. Um, the vicious cycle was the elite few serve. We didn't spend much time on this, but we went through the book of Judges and talked a little bit about that. And uh, we're into a bad situation when a few are serving. We're into a great situation when everybody's serving. And last Sunday, we had a tremendous time here at church. If you weren't here, you just missed a party because we had a lot of fun. We had uh, between 80 and 100 kids, evangelistically speaking. I know it was 100. Um, but that was our goal. And we just had a tremendous time. Lots of folks came that had never been on our campus before. We blessed them with a good time and a safe time for their children. And there, it happened because lots of people pitched in and worked. In fact, poor Stan and Ann, they showed up and they helped out. They ran the fishing booth. I think they got an award. Didn't they get win one of the prizes? And it was one of the most popular items for the children was this fishing thing. So a lot of people served. And not only that, we talked about values, and we didn't have time to flesh this one out, but the, one of the themes in the book of Judges is this, that God left the enemy there, so-called the Canaanites and the Philistines and others. Those people remained in the land. And you know what Judges said? God left them there to test Israel to see, is Israel going to live by God's values, or is Israel going to adapt the values of the people around them? And you know the result. And the challenge to us is to look at our lives and say, how am I being co-opted by the world around me and picking up values that are not godly values, or am I living with the values God gives me that flow out of Scripture? And so that's, that's where we were last week. Now, this morning, um, I want to finish this out. We've actually got five cycle, uh, seven cycles we're looking at. We're going to do five, six, and seven today. And so I want to... Uh, to go through those with you today. I want to read a prayer. It was the prayer that a preacher prayed last Sunday. It's a good prayer. He prayed, Father, give us grace and mercy. Father, help us this week as we go, this next week and a half, as we go into national elections. And Lord, we pray for our country. Father, we pray that lies would be exposed. We pray that deception would be exposed. Father, we pray that wisdom would come upon our electorate and that they would think with clarity and with decisiveness. And Lord, that we would be a model for the whole world to see how people can disagree passionately, but 
the rule of law and order will prevail. Now, to take that a bit out of context, as the pastor prayed that we would be a model for the world, that's exactly what God had in mind for Israel, that they would be a model for the world. And that's what God has in mind for you, that you as an individual and we are as a church be such a remarkable group of people that the world says, wow, remember the story of the Amish recently? And everybody was dumbfounded by their response in this face of tragedy. They were a model for the world. They are a great example to us of God's people. Now, about that prayer, Ted Haggard prayed that prayer last Sunday night or Sunday morning. My heart is broken this morning over our news. Joyce and I talked half the evening Friday night. How does this happen? And this morning, I hope we pray for Ted Haggard and his family, for the NAE, for their church. Can you imagine gathering in that church this morning? It's heartbreaking. And I hope your heart is also broken over this situation. Do you know what happened there? Entropy. Entropy. And it wasn't attended to. And a vicious cycle started. And you know the results. So what we're talking about today and what the book of Judges is about It's serious. It's real. And we're going to look at the life of Samson. We don't have nearly the time to delve into this like we should or could. But, uh, wow, Samson lives thousands of years ago, and yet this very week we see the same thing that is being talked about here in the Scriptures thousands of years ago, so relevant for today. The Word of God is powerful, and it will help us live our lives if we'll read it and heed it. And so let's talk about Samson. What do you know about Samson? What's the one thing you know about Samson? He's strong. That's right. But odor isn't everything, right? Oh, that's a bad joke. Uh, Samson was strong, and that's what we know about him. Now, I grew up in Sunday school, and Samson is taught in every Sunday school around the country. And he's sort of seen as a hero. He's this great big guy. He's extremely gifted, and he was. He's strong. And sort of at the end of his life, we know, you know, that he had this problem. But he's really lifted up as a hero. Now, this morning, I hope I don't offend you, but uh, we're going to debunk Samson. He's no hero. And as you read through the book of, of uh, Judges, he is the last of the judges, and he's actually the worst of the judges. There are no more judges after Samson. And in the next chapters, this country, which is on the precipice of chaos, just slides right off into it. And I want to start in chapter uh, 13 about the birth of Samson. And uh, let's, let's dig into at least some of the scriptures here uh, this morning. Judges chapter 13 And we're going to start, it's, where am I, on page 231, if you're in the Pew Bible. And let me read to you the beginning here of uh, this chapter about Samson. It's about the birth of Samson. A whole chapter is taken up on his birth. He's a miracle baby. And the story is like this. The Israelites, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And you remember that cycle we put up of peace, complacency, sin, pain, crying out to God, and so forth? Well... I didn't have time to put that up again today, but that's the idea here. But the, the, the problem is, and you may have missed this, they don't cry out to the Lord. And it's back in chapter 10 that this cycle happens, and it says they cry out to God because the Ammonites and the Philistines are on top of them oppressing them, and God hates oppression. And they're oppressing them, and Israel cries out to the Lord. But here, they're so used to sin by now, they don't cry out to the Lord. 
They just, they, well, this is kind of the way it is. You've got to put up with it. And as you go through here, if I had time to show you, they actually have become accustomed to the Philistines oppressing them. Is it possible to get used to sin so that it no longer seems sinful? What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. And if you ignore things in your life, it will come a day when you might be shocked by something today, but months or years later you've rationalized it and adapted so much that you actually don't, you really don't think it's sinful anymore. And that's the depravity of our human nature. Now I'm going to illustrate it with a physical illustration. This is nothing about sin. But when I grew up as a child, I had chronic asthma. I was sick a lot with asthma. And this is before, you know, modern medicine. I'm so old, but not quite. But uh, anyhow, you know, I had tests for allergies and all this stuff and was on a strict diet for because of my allergies and uh, struggled with that. was in the hospital a few times because of asthma. As I grew up, thank God, somehow in my 30s, 20s and 30s, there became less and less asthma. I don't have any asthma anymore. I outgrew that. But along the way, I got used to hay fever and my nose being plugged up and, you know, just never breathing through my nose was pretty common. I broke my nose and didn't get it fixed. And, you know, so I've always had a lot of congestion and nose problems. But last fall, it got so bad, Joyce said, why don't you go to the doctor? Because there were days I couldn't breathe at all out of either nostril. And on a good day, I might breathe half, you know, half open one nostril. The other one was always closed. And Joyce said, this is ridiculous. There are doctors. Go to the doctor. So finally I did, and to make a long story short, um, I was at Kaiser Permanente, and Dr. Moscoso said, you know, I can fix this, Steve. Now, whether you think it's better or not, he got into some of the troubles with your nose, but he said, you know, I can open this up and give you relief. And we talked about that, the upside of surgery, the downside, there's always a risk, and so I put it off. But finally, in May, I went to Dr. Moscoso. He did the thing, outpatient surgery. I got well. I can breathe through both nostrils. I haven't had any problem. I haven't had a stuffed nose since then. Why did I put up with this all those years? Just human nature. I got used to it. It's not that bad to not breathe. I've still got my mouth. Uh, You could have killed me by simply taping up my mouth. See, I would have suffocated. But that's the way our human nature is. Are you with me? And so it's, it's okay now and then to be vigilant and look around our lives physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually and say, where is there decay? Where am I just slip sliding away? And to arrest that. And so we want to do that in the few minutes we have together as we look at the life of, of Samson. Um, Samson and his, Samson's parents were named Manoah. And his mother's name were not given. As we start in chapter 13, you can read it for yourself. But I'm very, I'm in deep debt this week to somebody named John uh, J. Clinton McCain. He wrote a, a series of articles on Samson, and they've been very helpful to me. And he says, as we look at this story, uh, we think Samson's the hero, but he's not. You know who the hero is? Throughout the book, God's the hero. But humanly speaking, the mother is the hero. This unnamed woman, and women are so key in Samson's life. Here's this woman. An angel comes to her and says, you're going to have this miracle boy, this baby. And uh, the dad's not too sure about it, so the angel comes back. Twice the woman is visited, and uh, the man, Manoah, the husband, finally meets him. And so this boy is born. Now, Samson was a special baby, and I don't think it's possible to overstate how gifted he was. He was a great guy. I suspect he was great-looking. He was a muscle builder like our governor, only stronger. 
he was also given a Nazarite vow. In other words, he was a very special person to be called a Nazarite. And we know about that. There were at least three conditions. One was he was never to touch anything dead. That was a part of the vow. Secondly, no beer, wine, or strong drink. So he had this kind of puritistic lifestyle. Thirdly, he wasn't to what? Cut his hair. No haircuts. And so that was the third thing. That's the way uh, Nazarites lived. Now, Samson grew up like that. He he had good parents, apparently. Their favor was upon him. And he grew up with this. And I think that God gave Samson extraordinary gifts because he lived in such an extraordinarily bad time. They needed a great leader, and he was going to have to be quite a man or woman. And so Samson was that man. And I would suggest to you, and I have no idea whether anybody would pick up on this, but I would suggest to you that Samson might have been able to be a leader like Moses or David had he used his gifts. But he blew them. He absolutely blew it. And so I want to look at this vicious or victorious cycle. And uh, let's begin by, on your circle, at the top of your page, flip it over to the back side, and there should be a circle. And under number five, write the word committed. Committed. Not whether you're committed or not to jail, but... uh, You know, committed. And we want to talk a bit about commitment. And on the vicious circle, down on number five, write the word broken commitments. And on the other side, for the, uh, oh, my goodness, there's a bad typo. What should that read? Victorious. Cross that out. Whoo. Entropy. It'll get you. (laughs) Okay, on the victorious side, write down the word honored commitments. Honored commitments. Now, talk back to me. What are some of the commitments that we make in life? Marriage. Marriage. Motherhood. Motherhood. Fatherhood. What else? To our faith, our religion. What else? To tell the truth. Keep your word. We make all kinds of commitments. Somebody said jobs. That is a commitment, right? Anybody have a credit card? Nobody over here has a credit card? You're just looking at me blankly. Really? Just pay cash, huh? Isn't this a commitment? If you use this, it's a promise I will pay. That's what it is. If you don't pay, you broke your promise. That's, that's the way it works. We have a commitment to our country. You ought to vote this Tuesday. You ought to be concerned about politics and be invested because this country has given so much to you. And we have some commitments as citizens of this country. Uh, In our families, I have commitments to my parents, my sons, my grandsons. They're all kinds. We live with all kinds of commitments. Now, the question is, do you keep them or don't you? Do you break your commitments or do you honor your commitments? And in this whole cycle here, the problem with Samson was that he broke his commitments. In fact, in chapter 14, Samson goes over to the enemy, in this case called the Philistines, and he sees a beautiful woman there. Nothing wrong with that. But he decides he's going to marry her. His parents protest, but he marries her anyhow. And that begins a whole series of his relationships with women. One commentator said Samson was a a sex-crazed buffoon. (laughs) Not a very nice thing to say about a man in the Bible. But uh, in this story, in chapter 14, on one occasion, he's going down to the city of the Philistines. Why is he going down there anyhow? He should be taking an army down there to wipe him out. That's the enemy. But he's going down there, and the Spirit of God comes upon him as a lion attacks, and it says he kills the lion with his bare hands, an amazing feat. 
That's good. God's power enabled him to do that. Later, he goes back down to this country, and uh, the bees have made a nest in this lion, and there's honey, and he takes the honey, breaking the commandment of the Nazarites by touching a dead animal. And that's the beginning of a series. He broke every one of those commandments. And so, while he had made commitments, and parents had made commitments, and there was an expectation in Israel of what he'd do, he just didn't keep them. He broke them routinely. And this morning, I want to ask you to think about your life. Are you keeping commitments? There's a vicious cycle of breaking them. There's a victorious cycle of keeping them. Which is it in your life? Now, on number six, uh, write the word discipline in the top of the circle. The word discipline. Discipline. Oh, isn't it a wonderful word? Discipline is, a, is your ability to teach yourself or be taught by others and to restrain yourself. That's discipline. The more disciplined you are, the freer you will be. The less disciplined you are, the more in bondage you will be. Are you a disciplined person? And in the uh, vicious and victorious cycle, write in the word no discipline in vicious cycle. And in the victorious cycle, you write in yes discipline. Now, we go back and forth in these, I understand, but you're, you know, some of us are disciplined and some of us are not, and it's a key issue in life if you're going to live for God victoriously. Now, in the book of Judges, um, it is said in chapter 13, verse 5, that Samson began to deliver Israel, but that's all that you can say about him, and it was a pretty poor beginning. Now, I think he had the potential to be the greatest judge, to be a judge like Deborah, who listened to God and used God's power, but he didn't. He selfishly wasted his own power in these little skirmishes that gave him glory and brought no relief from the oppressor to Israel. And it happens over and over again. Now, as we look at Samson and think about this vicious cycle, there's either discipline or there's no discipline. And in his life, in chapter 14, I mentioned there's the, there's the woman in Timnah that he hooks up with her, a Philistine. And then in chapter 16, early verses, uh, years have gone by, he meets another woman. She's a prostitute of the Philistines. I'm going to ask you whether or not Samson practiced safe sex. Now, what I mean by that is, do you think it's, forget about the morality here. I mean, don't forget about it, but, you know, that's another issue. But do you think Samson, who's to be a judge in Israel, ought to be running down literally playing around with the women of the Philistines, the enemy, and telling all these riddles. Is, is that safe sex? Is that a safe thing to do? Of course not. He's just playing with God's gifts to him. And he poses these riddles. And the biggest riddle of all is Samson. What are you doing down there? And then, of course, what's the uh, final woman in his life's name? Delilah. We all know that. Chapter 16, Delilah. And uh, Samson falls in love with Delilah. I, I think she must have been a spectacularly beautiful woman. Extremely sensual. So much so that Samson is just flipped upside down. She doesn't even have to be very uh, conniving or secretive. She's just right out there with her deal. Tell me your secret, Samson. And she pesters him. And it turns into a little ridiculous game in this uh, kind of psychosexual problem of Samson and all this domination as he lies to her and then he throws off the Philistines as they come and they start fighting with one another. And this goes on and on. You know how it goes. And finally... 
he, uh, and, and one wonders how much alcohol played in all this because finally he's passed out asleep and he wakes up. And I want to pick up reading in uh, chapter 16. What did Delilah finally do to him, you remember? Gave him a haircut, yeah. Another vow broken. In chapter 16, verse 20, Then Delilah said to Samson, The Philistines are upon you, Samson! When he awoke from his sleep, he thought, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. Now here's the tragic line. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Wow. Entropy. Spiritual entropy. And so the scripture says, The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Mm. Do you think that's what God had in mind when he created Samson and gave him to Manoah and the woman? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I don't understand all about our freedom and God's power and will, but I can tell you this. God had a different plan for Samson. It wasn't this plan. But he wrecked it because he wouldn't control himself or discipline himself or take the counsel of others or do what God asked him to do. And so the plan was destroyed. And that brings us to the last of our cycles, repentance. Right at the top of the outline, if you would, the word repentance. And then on the vicious cycle, repentance for the wrong reasons. (laughs) Samson did repent, sort of. I mean, why wouldn't you? If you've lost your eyes, you're shackled, you're being made fun of. It was pretty painful for Samson, I guess. Now, here's repentance for the wrong reasons. Repentance for the wrong reasons means that I got caught, and I'm really sorry. What are you sorry about? Well, it's always a little bit of a question, isn't it? Are you sorry for what you did, or are you sorry for you got caught? That's a wrong reason to be sorry because if you got caught. Another reason we get sorry when we repent is the pain. We're sorry... Are we really sorry for what we did, or are we just sorry because it hurts so bad? And the Bible says, be sure your sins will find you out. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but payday comes. And it is so painful. It is so painful. And it was for Samson. And so he cries out to God. And the question is, when you repent, what kind of repentance do you do? Let me illustrate from going to the dentist. Uh, Anybody just love to go to the dentist? Even if you don't need to, David, you do? I hardly believe it. Um, The dentist, for example, we go there for one of two reasons. If you're really smart, you go down to the dentist and you get your teeth cared for and cleaned because that's preventive maintenance. You don't want to have a problem. But you don't just go down there to hang out with the dentist and have him roam around in your mouth. You know, do something. Or, if it's not preventive, then maybe you've got a toothache and it's to relieve the pain. But in either case, most of us don't just assemble at the dentist's office to have a party because dentists are so great and we just open our mouths and they're going to pry and pick around in there. And so when you think about repentance, we can repent, but is it really for the right reason or the wrong reason? And in the victorious cycle, we repent for the right reasons. Now, by the way, did you know Samson was not only the strongest man in the Bible, he was also the funniest man in the Bible? Uh Uh-oh. He brought the house down. Right? Yeah, he did. It's a, tr- it's a dark humor. It's tragic. But as Samson was, you know, one day they were going to make fun of him, so they led him into this temple or arena, and uh, the Scripture says his hair had begun to grow, a sign of grace, actually. 
And as they led him into the arena, he, this is like a foxhole prayer. One last prayer, God, if you would just do this for me now. And God did. Amazingly, God answers this guy who's blown his life. God answers his prayer. And it says, in the end, Samson, as he brought down the house, killed more Philistines in his death than he had in his life. But it's such a tragedy. And it didn't do Israel any good. He didn't remove the oppressor. So this morning, how about repentance? What is the right kind of repentance? Repentance for the right reasons. What does that mean? Well, in the Bible, there's this scripture that talks about repentance. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance. When I'm truly sorry for what I've done, and I'm broken by it, and I say to God, I'm sorry, it's not the words, it's the heart. And that brings repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation. And look at that word. Leaves no regret. Hallelujah. God washes away my sins. But worldly sorrow brings death. In 1 John, we're told how to confess or how to repent. It says, if you will confess with your mouth, um, if you, if we, I'm going off on another verse. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, if a person says, I've not sinned, they make God out to be a liar and the truth is not in them. In other words, we've all sinned. And so this morning, as I conclude and as we think about Samson, um, as you look over that list, how is it in your life? Are you caught in any vicious cycles of entropy, spiritual entropy that are destroying your life, bringing you down? Why do you stay there? Why not get some help? Why not repent and confess that to God and take whatever steps you need to take to break that cycle? How is it in your life? Or are you in a victorious cycle? I find that the key to the victorious cycle is ongoing repentance. Ongoing repentance. A humble, open heart that's truly sad over how often I sin, how badly I do my life compared to the way God would have me do my life. Now, I was reading a Catholic uh, writer the other day, and he was concluding his book on uh, focusing on the cross and on God's love for us expressed on the cross. And as I've thought over and over about this moment, this conclusion to judges, and about repentance, I've said, what does that mean? And, you know, I can say to myself, well, Steve, you know, your sins aren't so bad. At least you didn't do what Ted Haggard did. And so I feel pretty good. So, God, I'm sorry for, you know, the way I dissed that person or my unkind act or a lustful thought, but at least, you know, you know what I see, you see what I'm doing? Or I can say, you know, my sins aren't as bad as her sins, you know, I didn't gossip. And so we always are trying to compare ourselves and say, well, and we always find somebody a little worse off than we think we are. And we come out feeling okay. And if you do that, that's just really not repentance. It has nothing to do with repentance. So how do we repent? Well, this is a great day to talk about it because the, the bread and the cup are before us. And I'll tell you how we repent. You, you close your eyes and you try to be... Uh, concentrating on the cross of Christ and yourself. You, you just block others out. And you think, Steve, how, how sinful are you, really? And as I think about the cross of Jesus, I realize that sin always hurts others. It hurts me. It's hurt, it hurts my family. 
But most of all, it hurts God. How badly does it hurt God? It breaks his heart. Really, how badly does it hurt God, Steve, your sins? Well, picture the cross. Picture the crown of thorns on Jesus' head, Steve. Picture the nails in his hands. Because it's your sins that put him on that cross, not somebody else's. Yours. Your sins. How bad are your sins, Steve? They're so bad. They're so bad. They cost Jesus his life. And I repent. I'm sorry, God, for my sins. I'm sorry. But I thank you. If I confess my sins, if I simply open my heart to your grace, you forgive me, you love me, you did it for me and for you. And so this morning, I encourage you to repent. And remember, God is faithful and just and will cleanse you, will wash away your sins and give you a new heart and a new life. He will enable you to live victoriously for Him. And to go forth this morning realizing I'm free, I'm clean, I'm loved by God, Jesus loves me. And I encourage you this morning as we come to this table to uh, consider what we've studied in the book of Judges and uh, to do your work with God. There's a song, I can't sing it for you, but I can give you the words, you'll recognize it. Woe, God only knows, God makes his plans. The information's unavailable to the mortal man. We're working our jobs, collecting our pay, believing we're gliding down the highway when, in fact, we're, what? Slip-sliding away. Slip-sliding away, slip-sliding away. You know, the nearer your destination, the more you're slip-sliding away. It's a good line for Samson. But it doesn't have to be like that. As we are brutally honest with ourselves, and as we do business with God, God comes into our life and He changes things and makes us able to live the life He wants us to live. And I want to encourage you to step into that victorious cycle today. Let's pray. And I'm going to ask that as I pray, those of you who are serving communion with us today, if you just come forward and you can sit on the front rows uh, as I pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, It's tough to understand sometimes. It's a challenge, especially the book like Judges. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your coming into our lives for the whole purpose of helping us, of forgiving us, of giving us hope and faith and love and a new new way of living. And I pray for each one of us here today that you might help us to do the spiritual business we need to do with you. Father, our hearts are broken, and we pray for our sisters and brothers at New Life Church in Colorado. We pray, God, that this would not be a barrier to their walk with you, but rather it would cause every one of us and them to examine our own lives, and to to just be open and clean and come before you and live humbly with you. We pray for Ted Haggard. We pray for his dear family, his wife and children. We pray, Father, for your touch upon them, that each one would begin right now taking the steps they need to take towards healing and wholeness, towards forgiveness, towards health. Father, We also pray for our nation as we enter into this most important time of an election. And as a nation, we have many sins to repent of, Lord. 
And we ask that you would guide us, help us to, to set aside whether we're a Democrat or a Republican and really seek to discern your will and to vote for people who will seek justice, seek to care for the poor, seek to reach out to the neediest among us. Give us hope and health, Lord. Help us to know how to vote. For those who seek peace, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.